Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and you're listening to an episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast. This is done in conjunction with the New Books Network, of which I am the editor. And today I'm very pleased to say we have Jennifer Morton on the show, and we'll be talking about her terrific book, Moving Up Without Losing Your Way, The Ethical Costs of Upward Mobility. And it's out from Princeton in 2019. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely my pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? I'm a presidential associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm a philosopher. Before I came to Penn, I was at UNC briefly, and before that, for many years at CUNY, where a lot of the research um, that went into my book started. Um, I work in philosophy of education, philosophy of action, and I'm really interested in how issues that have to do with class and race and other kinds of social identity affect our agency and, and how we lead our lives and, and how we flourish. That's terrific. Thank you very much. Um, so let's turn directly to the book. Let's get right to business. Well, why did you write Moving Up Without Losing Your Way? And, and what were you hoping to accomplish with the book? Yeah, so the research that uh, led me to write the book started really from an effort to understand my students. I was teaching at the City College of New York. Um, Before I got to City College, I had taught briefly at Swarthmore College, an elite liberal arts college, um, and I got my graduate degree at Stanford. Um, And so the student population at CUNY was very different than the student population that I had taught before. I was also a very, you know, young assistant professor and knew very little about teaching. Um, and so I found that my first year at CUNY, I was really struggling with one, figuring out how to teach, but also how to teach these students. Cause I realized that so many of my students had challenges, um, that, that were went way beyond the classroom or, you know, what I think of as academic preparation or writing skills. Of course, some of my students had those sorts of challenges, but a lot of the challenges they faced had to do with how to um, kind of lead lives that were very rich outside of school, where they were playing all these important roles in their families and their communities. And then they were coming to college to try to get a degree. And I saw them often struggling with the burden of trying to do both of these things at once. Um, And it was in an effort to sort of understand my students and try to teach them better that I delved into a lot of the social science and thinking about class and education and also uh, generally the, the terrific work that has been done on higher education recently. And as I was reading through all this um, social science, I realized that there were really important um, ethical issues here, not just issues about how to support students to get them to graduate, but really thinking about the kinds of um, challenges the students were confronting and leading flourishing, rich, valuable lives. Um, And so, um, that's that's kind of the genesis of the of the research project of the book, um, and my many years of teaching at CUNY, uh, my students, you know, they just gave me so much, but they really were very open about sharing with me uh, a lot of the challenges that they confronted in, in succeeding on this path that a lot of them uh, were excited about, right? This getting a college degree, getting a good job, like being able to help their families. Um, 
and how challenging that was for them for for reasons, some of which were economic, but a lot of which were about uh, values and doing the right thing and, you know, their relationships with their family and their friends and their communities. So just to frame the discussion a little bit, when we think about the costs of higher education, higher education being, at least in the American mind, uh, the great uplifter, those costs are primarily economic. It costs a lot to go to college. Everybody knows this. But these are not the costs that you're talking about. So- yes, good. And I, and I struggled with framing this conversation in, ter- in terms of costs. Um, But part of the reason that I decided to frame it in that way is because so much of the discourse in higher education is about financial costs, right? And so we're used to thinking about financial costs, about the barriers that students face in terms of not just tuition, but cost of living. And that had been where the discourse in higher education had been. But what I wanted to contribute to the conversation was noticing the students were giving up in other aspects of their lives that weren't financial. And these are what in the book I call the ethical goods. And it's just aspects of their lives that they value and that are important to all of us leading flourishing lives. So their relationships to their families, um, to their friends, to their communities, um, and the value that they derive from those relationships um, and and how involved they were in their identities, right? And so what ends up happening with some, some students and not all of them, but some low-income students, some first-generation students is that going to college involves not just negotiating financial costs, but figuring out how to uh, maintain relationships with important people in their lives that might become strained through the process of higher education. Um, And and that's what I was seeking to kind of put on the table in the conversation we were having about costs, say, there are these costs, they're not not quantifiable, they're not financial, uh, they're not like student debt, but they are, for students, important and often very painful costs that they pay when they find that their relationships um, suffer from um, their uh, uh, educational trajectory. I recognized what you're talking about immediately because of my own college experiences. I, I'm, I'm from Kansas in the Midwest, and then I went to a rather tony and really quite excellent liberal arts college. I, I, I owe them a lot. I, I really loved the place. But when I got there, I felt a certain amount of, I don't know what to call it, culture clash or... I didn't really know how to operate in the environment because the other students at this wonderful institution, um, well, they were different. They had been raised differently than I had. Uh, and that, that was fine, but it, it did cause a certain amount of um, perplexity on my part. I, I, it took me a while to develop a new identity yeah, in order good. to do that. Um, and so there's been a lot of really wonderful sociological work on this kind of cultural divide or um, cultural gap that some students feel when they get to college, especially colleges that are dominated by um, students who come from wealthier families, that come from families in which their parents have gone to college, maybe even the same college, right? And and have this wealth of knowledge and this way of moving through that world that feels easy to them. And you know, for those of us like myself that came from like a family where. Um, that wasn't the norm and where I was just raised in a different cultural environment, there can be this feeling of this mismatch. Um, 
And and that's definitely a part of what I discuss in the book. I think there is more than the mismatch. And so um, the the mismatch in, in a way, I think, is a part of this bigger phenomenon, which is that for uh, many low-income students, uh, many students from who are first generation, it, college is the path to a different community, right, than the one that they grew up in. And that involves not just like learning the cultural norms, right, though that's part of it, but it probably means living in a very different place after you graduate from college than the one you grew up in, becoming friends with very different people than the, than the ones that you grew up with. Um, and also just developing these relationships um, with people that are very different from you. And at the same time, potentially uh, seeing the relationships you have with people back home weaken um, because of this process. And so um, the, the way that I think about it in the book is that it's important to recognize that these costs are ethical because they concern the students' aspects of their lives that contribute to flourishing. And what that means is that it's not just like a psychological burden, right? There is a psychological burden, of course, and there's a a cultural divide that might lead to anxiety and stress and all of that. But it's really about these important goods in a student's life that they're putting on the line. And these goods are not just goods that are valuable to the student, but to the person they have a relationship with, right? So, um, it, for students who end up kind of either metaphorically or literally leaving their communities to take advantage of opportunities, um, there's someone on the other end there who's losing something valuable too, whether it's family, although, you know, we, we maintain these family ties, but it might be friends, members of the community, neighbors who end up feeling this loss as well, that there's an important aspect of their lives that they're also sacrificing um, when they see, you know, a talented uh, and motivated uh, student leave and 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 often not come back. Uh, this also rang very true to me. I, I remember after my first semester of college, I went back home to hang out with my people, and many of them made fun of me and called me college boy. Right. <laughs> yeah. And noticed that I had picked up some weird pretensions. I, I mean, it's not like I spoke in an English accent, but <laughs> they were right. like, yeah. yeah. And, and I think it's the, the and we, you know, it's a familiar feeling of that the people who didn't make that choice, right, who stayed, remain connected and have evolved, like their relationships have evolved with each other, right, as you've been mm-hmm. away. And then you're coming back. And I mean, I myself experienced this, you're coming back. And it's, it's like, you're a visitor now, right? Yeah. You're not you're no longer part of the community quite in the same way as you were before. And that can be very disorienting, especially, and I mean, this speaks to to your kind of initial story about getting into, you know, this college campus, if you haven't quite found your place in this new community, right? And then you feel like I'm losing my connection, perhaps the identity that I had tied to these connections I had with people I grew up with. And I still can't haven't figured out a space in this new place or, a, you know, a group of friends or relationships that make me feel at home. And so what, what I, see, you know, see in, in, in the interviews I conducted were students who felt really like alone in this process because 
the the people they grew up with might not really understand what they're going through, might not really relate to their experiences, but the people around them in the college campus might not understand either, right? And so mm-hmm. you're kind of in this in-between space and that and that can be quite unsettling. I was very lucky in this way because I, I think simply by chance, I was put on a floor in a dormitory with people who essentially I learned to love and I am still in contact with them. I mean, there, there are five or six people on that floor that I talk to. <laughs> yeah, I, I had the same experience, actually. A lot of my good friends from college, I met that first year. And you do wonder, right? Is it, is it by chance or by design? Yeah, I don't know what they... happened, but I am still in close contact with, with, with four or yeah. five of these people. I talked to one of them yesterday, Richard. Um, and so yeah. that that was just luck. I I don't, I don't know if it was luck or not, but it, it was a, it was wonderful to have that context. Yeah, and this points to like a difference in the experiences that students who go to, um, you know, often private, highly selective institutions often have the resources to invest in the in aspects of the student experience that can feel like oh, it's just chance, right? But they've like thought about Mm -hmm. some of the student experience and how um, students move through campus, like how to help students make friends, uh, where students are living, you know, so in some college campuses, you have um, dorms that are tied to particular ethnic identities or to particular. So all of those resources are going into trying to build community on campus. For students that are commuter students, as my students were in CUNY, that can be a lot harder. Yeah. Like defining that community. And often they're working a lot of hours outside of going to class. So they might be taking a bunch of classes, working 20, 30 hours a week. Then they go home and their families need them to help around the house, whether it's you know financially, but sometimes it's just providing babysitting, providing elder care, whatever it is. And so they don't really have the time or a space at w- in which people have been putting all of this thoughtful care and resources to make sure that they're meeting other students and developing those friendships and those connections. And so for them, and I saw this with my community students, it can be just this kind of process of feeling like you're, you're not entirely sure where you belong and you haven't found people in this community you're trying to join that you feel very connected with. And at the same time, um, you feel um, this kind of increasing sense of distance from family and friends. um, And and that can just be a very stressful place to be in. And so the institutional differences matter a lot here to what kind of experiences um, first generation and low income students. Yeah, I was going to mention that. And I do wonder whether there is uh, some sort of differentiation we could make between liberal arts colleges and large commuter schools, and then big land-grant universities. And you reminded me of my mother. My mother went back to college when I was very young, and her college experience was entirely different than mine. She went to college, and and she didn't really go to college. She accumulated credits. That's the way she thought about it. It was just, she was trying to get to 120. That was the goal. She was not looking for friends or colleagues or people to hang out with. She had kids to raise, two of us, my sister and myself, and she right. just was accumulating credits. <laughs> yeah. And this is what's, I mean, 
become an interesting area of research in higher education, right? That there is such big differentiation in terms of the higher education sector. And we tend to operate with this mindset of like the liberal arts college, um, you know, the residential liberal arts college and what that looks like. But of course, many more students are going to community college or going to a public university where they're just trying to accumulate credits or going into the for-profit sector, because maybe they have a job where getting to the next level requires them to have a degree. And it doesn't mm. really matter where the degree is from. It just matters that you have those credits and yeah. that credential. And so they're going to have a totally different experience, right? The reason that they're going to college is not to uh, make new friends, be a part of this new, new community. Um, it is like your mom, it sounds like you you just need to get this credential. And that's kind of the whole point. Um, and, and their experiences are going to be so. Yeah, that's exactly right. In the case of my mom, she needed teacher certification uh, right. because she needed a job. <laughs> right. So, and that's where it ended. It's like she got, she, she got the certificate and she became a junior high school teacher. And that was, yeah. So, so my experience was entirely different than that. Uh, really apples and oranges. So let's drill down a little bit in the book. You talk about a group called, you call them strivers. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what a striver is or who strivers are? Um, Sure. The way that I conceived of strivers in the book were first generation or low income students. And sometimes these are the same category and sometimes they're not. For example, I was a first generation student, uh, I'm, I wasn't a low income student by, by some measures. It kind of depends how you think about it. But um, uh, s- some students are both first generation and low income. And so um, I kind of lumped these two groups together for the purposes of the book and called them strivers. And the idea of a striver is someone that is seeking upward mobility through education. And increasingly in our country, that is the path through which one even has the chance to uh, move up the socioeconomic ladder is through higher education. And this wasn't always true, right? Like 40 years ago, um, you know, there's uh, this uh, great book, and now I'm forgetting the name. Uh, That's okay. We forget the names of books all the time here. (laughs) These sociologists, Senate and Armstrong, I believe, that, uh, you know, have this book about kind of upward mobility, but within... Um, industry, right? So you might start off as a worker, and then you get promoted up. And at some point, like there is this tension of upward mobility with your family, because now you're the manager, right? Or like the manager of the of the floor of the factory. And that puts you in different relationships with the people that you used to be colleagues with and in a different way. And, but that's, that's changed a lot. And so now, really higher education is the path that we uphold as a path towards upward mobility. Um, and, and so to be a striver in the sense of my book is to kind of see higher education as an avenue towards socioeconomic mobility. Of course, that is not to say that you don't care about all the other things that it sure, is about, yeah. right? Like yeah. the learning and the skills yeah. and the, but, but, um, but, but that's how I conceived of a striver, someone who is turning to higher education in part, or at least one of the reasons to seek socioeconomic mobility. 
And if I understand correctly, you spent a lot of time with these people, both while you were teaching at CUNY and you also interviewed them and, and this kind of thing. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, um, many of my students at CUNY were uh, first-generation low-income students. Um, I also um, interviewed uh, people who had been first-generation or low-income students and were now professionals in, in the working world um, and asked them to reflect on their experiences. And I'm not a social scientist, so this was in some rigorous study trying sure. to figure out what is like representative of those experiences, what I was interested in was this issue of how they were thinking about what they gave up and about their connection to their home communities now that they were, you know, in the working world and a few years out of college and had been, quote unquote, successful on this path. Um, And what I found was that a lot of them have very mixed feelings about it, right? And so often the portrayal that... um, we offer students is that they have to work hard um, and it's going to be difficult and perhaps expensive to go to college. But then once they get that degree and they have a good job, they, your lives will be so much better in all of these different ways. Um, And what I actually found talking to um, people who had been successful in this way was that their feelings were, that they had much to gain. And I didn't really talk to anyone that regretted having gone uh, on this path, but that there were also losses and a lot of guilt and and kind of feelings of loss that, um, that I thought were a reflection of what it was that they, that they felt they had sacrificed in order to succeed in this way. Mm-hmm. So let's let's move on to the costs themselves, and this leads me back to my friends calling me college boy. And in your first chapter, you talk about a, a weakening or loss of relationships with family and friends and ties to the community. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what you found in talking to these people and what you experienced? Yeah, so there is a wide range here of how much weakening there is in terms of the relationships that strivers kind of put on the line, as I put it in the book, in the in the path of upward mobility. Um, I did find, you know, people whose parents had been incredibly supportive and still maintain very close relationships and were, you know, very connected to their families, despite, you know, being in a very different place um, than their parents had been. Um, but there were also, um, some strivers I talked to who felt this increasing distance from their communities and their families and their friends. And so, uh, one of the strivers I interviewed, I gave him the pseudonym, uh, Todd, um, found that as he made his way and was successful in the working world, his relationship with his sister got increasingly frayed because, she was in a kind of bad socioeconomic position and she felt like Todd should help her out financially. And he did, he helped out his family financially, but she thought it was never enough. And they got into these arguments over um, how much money he was sending back home. And eventually he told me he stopped calling as much or visiting as much, right? Because it was this kind of fraught relationship. Um, And, you know, even though Todd had a, 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 a lovely wife that he told me about and a good job and a house and all this stuff. 
he still had these complicated feelings about how distant he now felt from his sister and from his extended family um, and from the neighborhood in which he had grown up. And and that had been difficult for him to um, kind of reflect on, at, at, even as he had been successful in all these ways. Um, another uh, striver interviewed uh, Henry, who's a, a white academic, but had got, grown up in, in pretty extreme poverty, um, told me about the, the feeling that he had had that that he had no soul because he had walked away from his family. <laughs> Even though he acknowledged, you know, his sister had had battled drug addiction and he was in college or graduate school at the time um, and he couldn't help her, right? And, and he acknowledged that there was little he could have done to really help her given his position at the time, but he still felt terrible that he had basically had to cut her out so that he could focus on finishing his degree. Um, and that's still, he carried that guilt and that feeling, you know, even as he was now a successful tenured professor, he just kind of still carried that feeling that, that it reflected something um, bad about him, uh, that he had made that choice. Um, so those are the sorts of stories that I, um, that, that I found in conducting these interviews and that I think kind of put a, a real face or, you know, on, on this somewhat abstract idea of the, the ethical costs that uh, strivers pay. Um, while you were speaking, I was uh, re- reminded of my mother asking me when I was going to come back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was not going to come back. It was, I, you know, I tried to be very delicate about it, but, and I never went back. I mean, I would right. visit, but I never went back. And I, I haven't been back to my home state essentially for 30 years, I think. Yeah. Uh, and all my people are still there. I mean, it's not like I right. didn't talk to them, but the realities of my career was such that it could not happen there. There, right. there was not, not any choice here. I, I went where I could get the employment that I, I thought I needed. But yeah. there was always this question, when are you going to come back? And yeah. <laughs> right. And that points to the ways in which the costs that um, strivers pay are also so dependent on these, uh, so, you know, these factors about how we organize the labor market, about where opportunities are to be found. Um, and so, you know, even students who would want to come back, right? Uh, and I saw this with some of my students um, at UNC in Chapel Hill because they, many of them were from rural parts of North Carolina. Right? And so getting to Chapel Hill is this amazing feat. Their parents were so proud. Their their friends were so proud. Their communities were so proud. But they also knew that this student was probably never going to come back. right? Yeah. And, and it wasn't because, you know, the student wouldn't want to or didn't care uh, or, or, you know, like... Uh, I don't know, thought they were better than that. You know, that might be the case in some in some cases, but it was often there are no jobs for someone with those kind of qualifications in some of these rural towns. And so um, what I think is just, you know, as a parent, I think about this now, this is this kind of painful thought that um, your child is going to college and you know that they will not be a part of your community in the same way anymore. 
and that that's in effect what you're signing up for, right? And and yeah. um, that is such a complicated um, set of like feelings and and conversations that students often have with their parents um, as they're considering, you know, going to a place like Chapel Hill as opposed to going to the local, maybe the community college or another public university that's nearby and which in which students are not sort of Hmm. like making these leaps um yeah this is a nice segue to to the next chapter in the book and and that is about what i would call (laughs) i'm making this up student trade craft Uh (laughs) and and you see the thing about it is when i went to college i didn't know that that was it I mean, mm-hmm. uh, after I'd been there about a year, year and a half, and I understood the way people at this college, the way their careers progressed, I, I soon understood that I was not going back to Kansas. That, right. that was, I, I did not know this. Um, but I learned a lot about how to negotiate this small liberal arts college and academic life and so on and so forth while I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did not come with that knowledge. And this is really what you're talking about in this, uh, in this, in this chapter. You focus on various things, socioeconomic segregation and, you know, safety nets, and cultural mismatch. Can you talk a little bit about those things, about this kind of student create craft and, and how some people don't have it and have to learn it? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I also I mean, when I got to college, we didn't really have this, this lingo, right, around first generation college students. Um, and, and we didn't really think of that as an identity that people had. Um, and now we we think about it that way. And I think what that shows us is that this concept can be helpful, right, for people to organize their experiences, experiences that they might just feel like are about their own uh, personal failings or skills. Right now, you you can sort of identify that there is this background of how the institution's constructed, who's in that institution you know, the socioeconomic reality kind of outside of campus that is impinging on the kind of experience you're having of going to college. And so the what I was trying to do in that chapter was to situate these ethical costs in that broader context, because what happens is that some students, um, as I, you know, when I talked to Striver, some of them said this, they they took the choices they had made to be reflections of who they were, right? Instead of often understanding that they were making constrained choices against a, a background of uh, socioeconomic inequality about, uh, uh, you know, these kind of cultural mismatch that we were talking about. And so that actually their choices were operating within very... Um, you know, sorry, their their choices were happening against these tight constraints. And what's important to understand, I think, is that for strivers, succeeding in college and getting that degree can really feel like life or death, right? Yeah. Failure feels like very scary uh, in a way that for some students do not doing so well or or maybe needing a semester off or whatever it is might feel not as scary because they are somewhat familiar with what going to college is like. They might have parents that are checking in with them and talking to them about not just, are you doing okay, but what classes are you taking? Are you finding this class hard? Oh, why have you gotten to talk to the TA? 
you know, all of this um, really valuable information parents are conveying to their children, parents who are in the know, whereas first-generation students and many low-income students don't have parents that can guide them through that. And so for them, and I felt this as a first-generation college student, it feels like you're doing it on your own and you cannot fail, right? Mm -hmm. And so that raises the stakes of uh, really doing this well, whatever that means, but it can also make you feel like the the failures that you that you do encounter or the choices that you make that you feel uh, uncertain about reflect something about you and your abilities or your skills or your values or your identity instead of really noticing that there are all of these factors at play in why you're feeling this way or why um, you're in this situation. Um, yeah, I'll give you an example. You know, I had this kind of aha moment in graduate school about something that happened my first year of college. I was um, uh, had done very well in my uh, international baccalaureate math exams uh, as a high school student. So when I got to college, I went to advising, which often is, is quite terrible in many places, right? And so uh, I was talking to the advisor. He said, oh, you have done really well on this test take this math class, um, which was the most advanced math class that you could take as a first year student. It was four math majors, right? And I had thought maybe I'd be a math major because I like math. Um, And this class was, you know, I got there. um, There were maybe three or four other women in a class of 40 some students. Uh, The professor had just won... uh, or had just solved some theorem. <laughs> like he was on the on the splash screen of the you know college cover splash screen of the webpage. Um, he never made eye contact with anybody. He just came into the room and just wrote on the board. Never turned around. Never looked <laughs> at us. Um, and then I you know looked at the homework assignment and went back to my dorm room and opened it up. Oops, sorry. So I, I got to my dorm room, looked at the homework assignment, opened it up, and it said, uh, you know, it was something like proof that three follows from two and the two follows from one. <laughs> so it was, you know, like, basically, it said theory. Um, it was a real analysis class. And I had no idea. This had nothing to do with the notes I had taken in class. No idea how to connect it. I didn't know what to do. And, of course, immediately I was like, I just must not be very good at math, (laughs) as good at math as I thought I was coming into college, right? So I dropped the class, never took another math class, right? I took, I think it was like astrophysics or something to fulfill my quantitative requirement. Years later, I get to graduate school in philosophy and as part of logic, we have to do real analysis and do set theory, kind of basic set theory. And what, you know, once I was sitting in that class, I was like, oh, <laughs> I don't get what this is. I could have definitely done that if I had had the knowledge of who to talk to, right? I later discovered a lot of the students in that class had just gone to the, to the TAs um, because they also did not understand <laughs> what the professor <laughs> was saying, it turns out. I did not fully realize that, um, you know, and and there was and is still this issue of like minorities and women in math and how unwelcoming math can be to people from the, but I didn't really understand any of that. I just walked away thinking this is about 
my lack of math ability, you know, I thought I was good at math, turns out I wasn't. Um, and later I, you know, as I dug into this, I kind of conceptualized that from my experience in a whole different way. And so I think understanding this background can really help, you know, a student in that situation kind of put what they're seeing in, a, in the right context. Instead mm-hmm. of thinking, this is just about me understanding, this is about who else is in the classroom. Uh, there's a history here about why there are only four women in this class and, you know, 40 some men. Uh, and, and sort of putting all of that stuff in context can really, I think, help you navigate a situation like that. And so my hope with writing the book was sort of putting a name on the ethical costs, right? And kind of explaining how they're connected to this background would help someone who was in that position and was uh, feeling tempted to draw the conclusion that maybe college wasn't for them or that, uh, you know, that they're a bad brother or a bad sibling or a bad son or daughter because, you know, they're making these choices that distance themselves from their families, that it's a product of this background um, structure and not really about them personally, you know, having bad values or something like that. But what I remember is the weight of expectation, both from home and also from the students that I met at this college. It's a wonderful Mm -hmm. college too. I don't want to say anything bad about this place. It's a great place. Um, And just for an example, uh, the idea that you would take a semester or a year off was anathema. You had to finish in four years. There was no choice. If you did not finish in four years, you fail. And of course, I later went on to be a professor, and I spent about half my time telling people to take a semester off. (laughs) It will will matter not one bit, not at all, over the course of your life. It will improve your life, you know. But still, there was this notion like four years, and that's it. Like you've got finished in four years. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and I think that a lot of the expectations around what it is to be a successful college student in some ways have gotten worse in some schools. Um, I mean, this might just be, you know, as you probably know, when you're looking back at when you were at college and you see what college students are going through, you're liable to engage in this. Like back in my day, yeah, right. <laughs> it does seem to me that um, students just have this heightened sense of anxiety that they should be professionalized in their college attendance, right? That they should have it figured out how to get the most out of college, what internships to get, uh, what classes to take to position themselves for various fellowships. Um, And there is this heightened sense of anxiety about uh, this, this time in their lives that you know, we, we initially tell them it's going to be great. You're going to have so much fun. You're going to find yourselves, you know, whatever it is. And then um, as I see it with my students, a lot of them have a lot of anxiety about what the college experience is supposed to look like, or it's supposed to yeah. be like, or how to do it right. Yeah. I to, to look at it from a different angle, so the expectation from my people at home was you're going to finish in four years, that's it, if you didn't hear a failure. But then to kind of turn it around a little bit, I, I, I fell in with this group of people at this college who went to the library all the time. I did not know people did that. <laughs> I did not know that. And so I started to do that. 
you know, because I kind of wanted to be yeah. with them and do what they did. They were the cool kids or the kids I wanted to hang out with. This turned out to be a really great thing because right. I did pretty well in school. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, it, it is kind of about finding your way to a, a place where you feel uh, connected to others and that new community you're trying to join, right? And I, um, so when I was in college, I, I was a, an undergraduate of Princeton, famously has eating clubs, which are controversial and uh, you know, people think of them and they are exclusionary in all sorts of ways. Um, I had a fine college experience in a way because I just didn't even participate in that. Mm -hmm. I found my friends who were also people that didn't want to be needing clubs, a lot of them. Uh, and, and I kind of navigated around that by kind of opting out of the, the typical Princeton experience, right? I think what gets harder is what, and I talk to to students who've experienced this, who are um, interested in um, participating in that kind of mainstream experience, right? And like what what is a particular kind of experience at their college, but feel that um, because of their socioeconomic background or their lack of kind of understanding some of the cultural context. Um, they can't really do it unless they uh, engage in a fair amount of somewhat deception or hiding of mm -hmm. who they are or where they come from. And um, that can be, I think, very challenging for students that, you know, instead of opting to kind of find their crew outside of that mainstream, are really trying to be a part of that you know, the, the, the experience that they've been sold and that experience for them can feel very alienating and very anxiety provoking when they feel like they're, you know, they can't afford to go to the restaurant in town that their friends go to every week, but they also don't want to opt out of that and yeah, feel yeah. like they're like the weirdo that says, I, I can't go there. Um, and so there's all of these dimensions of, of how class ends up playing out in students' college experience that can really be devastating for some students. Um, and even as, you know, some of the people I talk to, even as they quote unquote succeed and they are, you know, find friends in, in that kind of world and do well and get the jobs that you expect afterwards, they kind of carry this sense of like, do I really belong here? Mm -hmm. um, so, so I, I don't want to make this interview a love letter to small liberal arts colleges in the Midwest, <laughs> but the, at, at Grinnell, there just wasn't any possibility of any of that because there really was nothing to do. I, I, the people at Grinnell, <laughs> there was no restaurant to go to really. And there were no eating clubs. There were no sororities, fraternities. There was no football team. There was... <laughs> yeah, there was I mean, no way to show that you were wealthy. Nobody right. had cars, <laughs> right? But some of that. So I saw this a little bit when I was teaching at Swarthmore. But some of that does come out in all these other ways, right? Like where people go for spring break, so people will plan vacations yeah, that's together true. and say, like, like let's go to the Caribbean, go or, to Cancun. Want to come? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and this uh, currency of. Um, also knowing your way around, right? And knowing how to do the college thing. 
I think is the kind of thing that can feel alienating to students who are just trying to figure out how to get through it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Well, this is a nice segue to, to uh, the, uh, your discussion of code switching. And I, I think what happened with me is I switched codes and never went back. Mm-hmm. I, I was a kid from Kansas and I just kind of became somebody else. <laughs> so can and you describe code switching as ethically fraught. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I think it depends on, um, you know, what, what community that you feel at home in before you got to college and what you're being asked to to do the code switching for, right? So um, people who have thought about code switching in terms of race um, and in terms of language also kind of think of code switching as this ability that you have to uh, be fluent in the cultural norms and in the language of two different worlds, right? So the easiest way to think about it is with respect to language, you know, I'm bilingual. So if I go back to Peru, where I'm from, I speak in Spanish and, um, and then I come here and I speak in English and I'm kind of switching back and forth. The more intangible uh, aspect of code switching can be just changing how, what sorts of things you say, the tone you use, how you dress, and all of that um, to fit into a space. Now, everybody code switch to some extent, right? You don't like act and talk the same way at work that you do with your kids at home or with your pals on the basketball court or whatever. Everybody does that. The thing that's tricky for someone like a striver on a college campus is um, that code switching can feel very much like trying to play a part on somebody else's terms, right? You're trying to fit in, do well, be accepted in this context in which you feel like the stakes are very high, that you do it well. Um, and at the same time, it might feel like people like you generally are not uh the norm or not accepted or somewhat marginalized. And so you're trying to act in a way that will make you more acceptable or make you feel more connected or more kind of make you yeah, move feels inauthentic. Way. You feel inauthentic, if I can use that yeah, word. Yeah, that might be. But so some people feel um, that inauthenticity and that is definitely the experience of some people who are code switching. I think for others, it might be the sense of like, losing a grip on how far you're supposed to take it, right? And that's what I meant by ethically fraught, which is, sure, I'm trying to succeed here. I'm trying to do well and to be friendly and to, um, you know, do right by, by, by the standards that people use around here. But some of the standards and the norms that people might be buying into might be ones that I don't think are right, or I reject, right? And yet, um, I might pay a price for for resisting them. So the in the book, I talk about the example um, of when when I was an undergraduate and I was a philosophy major. A lot of the philosophy culture this has changed some now was very combative um, and very like you don't say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> very argumentative, very combative, and like really being uh, the kind of person that could raise an objection to somebody's view that would take them down, right, right. was seen as the kind of thing that got glorified. Yeah. Now, I didn't, you know, as an undergrad, I didn't really have a very good uh, 
sense of of exactly what I was doing. I just know that was the thing to do. Um, and that was the thing that was valorized and valued um, in that community. And so I, I did that to some extent and I uh, was reasonably good at doing it um, and definitely felt rewarded in the ways. And it's only later as I started to reflect more on the demographics of the profession and not just me, but I think philosophy as a field had a reckoning with, you know, why are there so few women? Why are there so few people of color? Um, kind of what is happening in the field that I really kind of noticed the ways in which that sort of uh, way that I had just start adopted, that way of acting that I had adopted really contributed to this environment in which some people felt very put off by philosophy, right? Yeah. Even though they might like love the readings and the topics and they'd have a lot to say, but there was something about the combative environment that really um, turned people off. And I had somewhat unconsciously just adopted that way of approaching this aspect of my professional life. And it, and it felt like I was fitting in and right. But then yeah. on reflection, there was something really problematic about that. And so I think there are many examples of this in the professional world where we think, look, I want to do my job well. This is the way things are done around here. But some of the ways that things are done around here are uh, systems of exclusion uh, that are meant to exclude people that are, you know, from lower income backgrounds, that are meant to exclude people who are minorities or or women, depending on the space. And, and sometimes we just unconsciously adopt those ways because we want to code switch successfully. And mm -hmm. so I think there is this kind of aspect of it that can be ethically fraught. And it goes the other way too, right? So you go back home and I talk in the book about uh, a striver that faced a situation, went back home, is trying to reconnect with um, her community. She moved back there. Um, it's like a rural farming town. And she's found a job that allowed her to do the kind of work she wanted to do, but do it in this farming town. But then she all of a sudden noticed how many racist things <laughs> the people in her town were saying. And now that she had left and become a little bit more aware of the problems with that, it was really grating for her. And so, and she had this conflict. If I say something and say, this isn't right, you shouldn't be saying this, that thing you said is racist. People were going to react to her by saying things like, hey, you college college girl you know you think you're coming this, this just exact thing happened to me I, when i i, I went right. home for a summer job and i worked uh -huh. in a factory and there was some sort of typical racist banter i would put it that way uh -huh. and, and i remember thinking like I, I need to say something but i can't say anything like this isn't right we can't be doing this and i did eventually say something it did not turn out well for anybody involved right. <laughs> It really didn't. I probably would have been better if I just shut up and then, you know, gone away. <laughs> right. But that is exactly this, you know, it, it's a kind of a parallel situation in which you go back and you want to fit back in with your community, yeah. with the people you grew up. But then there are things that you've gained a critical perspective of that you want to be able to yeah. criticize. And that is disruptive. And so- well, this is a really nice segue because you talk in the in, in chapter four about ethical complicity, that, that you are complicitous mm -hmm. with, with, with a system which is kind of unfair. You know, it's good in many ways. It does help a lot of people get out of 
uh, of poverty. It, it, it is an engine for upward mobility. That's all great. You learn a whole bunch of really cool stuff. You know, that's neat. But there's some things about it that are imperfect. And you might find yourself to be um, involved in some sort of ethical complicity. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? And you say, I should say, you say that it, that needn't be the case and it shouldn't be the case, two different sorts of propositions. So can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? I sound like yeah. a philosopher there for a second, didn't I? Right, right. <laughs> um, so I, um, I think it's difficult for any of us living in the kind of world we do to really avoid complicity, right? So many of us... Um, work or operate within systems of oppression. Um, so, you know, whether it's a corporation or uh, could be a university or, you know, we, we kind of operate in this world in which the labor market rewards us for doing our jobs well. But doing our jobs well often involves kind of looking over you know, ignoring some aspects of the institution we're in that might uh, be oppressive in some way. So you just had the example working the factory floor, right? And you're not going to necessarily say like, uh, you know, stop saying that racist stuff or you did, but you think like maybe it would be better if well. did it, right? <laughs> um, and so that's just like a small example, but I think it's it's really difficult for most of us not to end up doing that to some extent. And I think for strivers, it can feel very fraught because you've worked so hard to get this job, to get this far, and you don't want to lose that. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so it can feel really hard to push back against things that you notice or that you see that you think are wrong and uh, problematic. And so, you know, I, I remember at one point I was at a, at a talk um, at a, I'll say, unnamed university. And there was something about the talk where I thought, this person's being really racist. Like some of the statements that they were making were just highly problematic. And I um, remember just later talking to the one other like person of color in the audience who had that exact same feeling. And we were just kind of like whispering in the background. And, you know, she... I we were both in somewhat non-senior, non-powerful positions within this community. And so we just felt like we are just going to whisper here to the side about what we thought was messed up about this, but we weren't going to get up and say something, right? Um, like we might have, but it might have come at a cost and it right. might have, you know, made it difficult for us to, to uh, kind of be seen as good members of the community within this particular space. Um, and so I think that there are these situations in which we feel like there's a lot at stake for us. We've worked so hard to get to this position, and yet we see something that we think um, isn't right or that it excludes people or hurts people. And and so I, what I argue in the book is we have to be really reflective about kind of pushing back on those um, points. And that might mean that sometimes you're quiet, right? Sometimes you might be in a very vulnerable position. You're a graduate student and, you know, you're some senior person in your department says something that you disagree with. And you think if you push back, it might be that they... Uh, have a grudge against you. Maybe yeah. you know this person has a history of doing that. You know, I think in that situation, 
you make a note, <laughs> you know, later when you're in a position with more power, there might be things that you can do and moments you can say something, but it is this tricky negotiating um, that you have to do. And it doesn't mean that if you say something um, that was the wrong thing to do, of course, we all admire the bravery of someone that stands up even when they have a lot to lose. But I think for strivers in particular who are often feeling vulnerable in this way because this is such a difficult path to be on, it it can be hard to negotiate these conflicts that they face between being complicit and maintaining like the position that they earned um, by, you know, navigating this path of upward mobility. This negotiation that you have with the world is kind of the essence of the human condition, really. Like you're constantly negotiating these things and it's very difficult. I think that's right. I think what's important though, and I try to remind my students is that as they make it through, there are things that you can do to kind of push back, right? So I like to think about it as boundary pushing within your role. Uh, and also, you know, there are people who of course are, are involved in organizers and changing the larger structures, but even within your role, I think there are often places where you can sort of push back. And of course, as you quote unquote, make it right, you're, you're further up the hierarchy. There are more and more places where you can push back. Um, and, and you're in a better position to do so. Um, but, but it can be difficult to keep track of that if, um, you're worried about, yeah. you know, your your own path. Um, Especially in a highly competitive environment um, because, yeah. ev- you know, uh, everybody's looking for an edge and you don't know if the other people that you're dealing with are honest brokers or trustworthy. And right. so it, it can be, I think you see a lot of this online, quite honestly, when people are dealing with people they don't even know. And they're saying things that you know. I don't. I don't know about you, but I am not on Twitter. I don't. I don't do that. I like no. I can't. I don't trust yeah. myself to do it. And I, you know, it's just yeah. But this negotiation that you know, it's it's very, really very. Uh, it's a almost a universal thing that you you have to try to, you know, know when you can push back and know when you can't push back. And that that thinking about that itself is kind of a hassle. <laughs> Well, that's why you need ethics and philosophy, right? It's sort of that kind of reflection, I think is, I agree, it's very difficult. But if we don't do it, then, you know, the way I I think about it in the book is you just get pushed around by these social forces and you're not really in control of uh, the path that you're uh, pursuing. And then you find yourself, you know, 10 years on the lounge somewhere and you're like, I don't. I don't know that I, I liked how I got here yeah, or that yeah. I'm entirely happy where where I am. Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely well said and it's a good note to end the interview on. We have a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is what are you working on now? <laughs> well, you know, this is a very kind of long-term goal because right now with uh, I have a four-year-old and move. I just moved institutions, things are a bit chaotic, but I'm interested actually on what we ended up, which is the question of what happens after college and how people use what they learned in the liberal arts education, what we tell them, the critical thinking, the reflectiveness to carve um, careers for themselves where they feel like they're doing um, something 
that helps the public good in some way that gives back to their mm-hmm. communities, but that might also be like interesting and engaging, right? So we kind of have these standard paths that we think about, like you could be a teacher or work in a nonprofit or be a social worker, which are all amazing things to do. Lots of my friends are teachers and I, you know, love them and, and what they do. But I think that for college students in particular, we don't have a rich description of the many paths that they could follow after college that would be a contributing to the public good, but maybe not in the way that you standardly think of it. And so I'm interested in interviewing people who have gone on to have, you know, interesting careers and whether it's arts or business, but are trying to be reflective about mm-hmm. how to deal with this complicit potential complicity and actually give back and contribute to the public good. Um, and I really just started thinking about this because my students and also when I, I've given the talk about my book, um, students are like, you know, this is so interesting. Like, what can I do? What happens after we leave? Yeah, and, right. and we don't really have good answers for students. No. I mean, we have very standard answers, but that's not, you know, those of us who are now many years out of college know that you, it's rare that you get there on a straight line, that you major in history and become a history professor and then become, yeah. you know, that's. That's a very narrow range of the cases. Most it's very, it's very funny you mentioned this, and, and then I will let you go. I was looking at my CV the other day, and I don't know, as the older I've gotten, the shorter my CV has gotten. <laughs> but I was looking at it, and I was like, if you were a historian and that's all you knew about me, you would have the completely uh, completely erroneous impression of what happened. <laughs> because it's basically greatest hits. <laughs> and it was nothing like that. Well, and it's also just students that get into this idea that they're like, should I major in history or biology because of how it will position them in the labor market? And they really have no sense of what you might end up doing with a history degree or what you might end up doing with a philosophy degree. And so I want kind of a richly described set of cases that are not just you know, oh, if you're philosophy, you might end up directing a Hollywood movie, which right. is what sometimes yeah. we tell them. It's like, how does that happen? How do you get from you got your degree and now you're uh, own a bakery that has like a prison reentry, reentry program attached to it? How did you get there? And so mm-hmm. I'm interested in that uh, path. The, the advice that I always gave, I don't want to keep you too long, but, but was for students who asked this question, what should I do now? And I said, decide what you want to be Find the person who is that person and then go ask them how they right. did it. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, not by email, go see them. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they'll tell you. They will tell you how they did it. Anyway, well, Jennifer, thank you very much for being on the show. We've been talking to Jennifer Morton about moving up without losing your way, the ethical costs of upward mobility from Princeton University Press. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'm the host of the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast. And I hope that everybody tunes in again. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.